I'd been working for, for 20 years in a number of technologies. This is Ben Scott Robinson, co-founder of a farming and agriculture startup called The Small Robot Company. Mobile phones, music industry, mapping, all these places where the old ways of doing things, which tended to be quite industrial and tended to be based around scale, were being completely overtaken by new digital methods. You know, anybody using the old technologies was instantly out of date. Before starting the small robot company, Ben spent years working in user experience design. And, you know, we watched, or I watched these industries one by one falling. There was nearly always some sort of hegemony of, you know, five or six or seven huge companies that controlled this whole thing. And they were all caught off guard by somebody coming along and saying, let's do it completely different from the ground up. Like, for example, if we totally reorientated our approach to food production. Welcome to the Future Lab podcast, where I'm bringing you the stories behind the technological innovations taking imagined visions of the future and turning them into a present day reality. I'm Lucy Johnston. I'm the curator of the annual Future Lab Live exhibition at the Goodwood Festival of Speed, and I study the impact of new technologies on industry, society, and the world around us. In this podcast, I'm meeting people who are tackling the biggest problems facing planet Earth and using technology to change how we live our lives. In this episode, Top of the Crops. You really have to work with the environment, you have to work with biodiversity, you have to work with all the small animals in the ground. Industrial farming had hit a real barrier. We weren't producing any more food but it also hit a barrier in terms of a tipping point on an environmental level. Future Lab, the podcast, is brought to you by Roundox. If you've listened to the previous episodes of the series, you may be familiar with the Roundox team member we're about to hear from. I'm David Martin. I'm the Senior Manager and Manufacturer. David was one of the very first Roundox employees. I've been with Roundox now since the early 1980s. Um, I joined the company straight from university. I'm a biochemist, so the core science behind a lot of the testing that we do, I had a a good grounding in that before we started. Today, Randox is one of the world's leading medical diagnostic companies with thousands of employees. But it didn't always look like that. David loves telling the Randox origin story. The company at that stage was literally a converted chicken house in the back of the Fitzgerald's family home, so very, very humble beginnings. Randox has grown significantly since the chicken house days, and their work's been more important than ever over the past 18 months. Not just in developing COVID tests, but also in changing how people think about diagnostics. Certainly if we'd we'd go back pre-pandemic, I think people would have said that diagnostics was probably uh, a lower 
consideration in terms of the, 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 the treatment process. But I think what we've learned over the course of the pandemic is that diagnostics is, is critical, you know, not only to detecting disease and monitoring disease, but ultimately in the treatment of that disease. Through David, we're going to hear more about how Randox has changed the field of diagnostics with its tests. But for now, back to the Future Lab podcast. There's no escaping the fact that designing technology for the future now means designing for a world on the brink of irreversible climate change. It's come up in almost all our episodes so far because so many facets of our lifestyles can affect whether the future of our planet looks brighter or darker. One of the areas where we can really impact the climate and the planet is in the choices we make around food. This is of course a huge topic so it's something we'll be returning to a number of times on the Future Lab podcast. But to start us off, we're asking, are there ways we can change our relationship to what we eat and how we source our food? Food is part of culture. This is Mark Coolsdom, co-founder of plant-based food company, The Dutch Weed Burger. I've known Mark for over five years now, since I first discovered his pioneering approach to food and invited him to test taste his products at a big technology festival in the UK. We could live such better, healthier, friendlier lives if only we put our hearts and mind into it and our, and our stomachs. <laughs> According to the UN, we currently eat way too much meat, especially in the West. Switching to a plant-based diet is one of the ways we can help reduce climate change. Because rearing animals to meet the huge demand for meat and dairy products uses a vast amount of land, water and energy and releases greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Over the last couple of years, we've started to see a burst of creative meat-free alternatives to our favourite foods starting to crop up. With the Dutch Wheat Burger, uh, I think we're a major pusher in the protein shift that's going on right now from animals to plant-based proteins and... Um, been doing that for the past nine years. Despite the company name, it's actually seaweed, which Mark and his team specialise in, not the other kind of Dutch weed. Obviously, you know, coming from Amsterdam, you know, everybody comes here because of our uh, coffee shop culture. Um, I woke up one night and I thought we should call it the Weed Burger. And uh, yeah, that, that's how it started. Seaweed might not seem like an obvious choice as a beef stand-in. And Mark probably wouldn't have thought so either back in the day. I was visiting a professor in the University of Wageningen, which is all about agriculture and, and, and innovation. And um, he took me to his lab and um, in his lab he had two big, big ponds of water inside and it was all bubbly and it looked really high tech. And he brought his hands on the water and, and up he came with these green seaweeds in his hand. And he told me like, Mark, this is the new protein source of the future. And uh, yeah, that really uh, struck a chord in me. Mark had been a vegan for years at this point. Excuse my French, but we almost got so much from everybody, you know, when you eat plant-based, like, how do you get your proteins and rah, 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 rah. And here was a scientist, you know, uh, coming up with a solution. It turns out seaweed is full of high quality protein, omega acids and other minerals. It doesn't require agricultural land and it can be sustainably and organically farmed. It was the ideal hero ingredient for a plant-based foodie with activist roots 
looking for his next big move. My interest began uh, at the end of the 90s when I kind of got into the hardcore punk scene where um, a lot of the bands were singing about, you know, the degradation of, of the planet and, uh, you know, the ravage that's been going on uh, by the multinationals and, and the oil and the energy industry and food industry. And I could really feel the injustice going on and, and the inequality and everything and just made me really sad and wanted to do something about it. For the next six or seven years, Mark was part of the radical animal rights movement in Northern Europe. This led him down another unexpected path. Then I became a documentary maker and did that for about seven years. So I uh, switched a little bit from the animal uh, suffering to more human suffering. A lot of things in, for example, the Gaza Strip. It was in Sudan, you know, where there was a civil war going on for about 50 years. Mark's co-founder, Lisette Kreischer, was also a creator, working on projects with the same goals at heart. Like her vegan cookbook, Man Eat Plant. So their real-life Dutch weed burger started life in a documentary of the same name that they made together, all about seaweed as a meat-free alternative protein source. It was a documentary about vegan food and uh, with a special role for seaweed and... That project just um, morphed into um, a product that worked really well, and um, that's how it started. You can grow seaweed on a farm using ropes attached to buoys and lowered into water. You put the seedlings on the ropes at the end of the year, in October, November, and then all winter and spring it grows when the climate is uh, friendly for it. It needs a couple of nutrients from the water that are there, and uh, it needs sunlight to do the photosynthesis. Yeah, then the seaweed just grows. Then, when it's ready to harvest... We wash it clean, so if there's any, like, you know, small critters at the weeds, you know, you wash them off, and you wash off a little bit of sand and stuff like that, because it is a natural product. Then we, we freeze it fresh. When it comes time to use, they defrost and mix the seaweed right into the burger patties. Mark and his team work closely with a seaweed farm called Zavar, run by co-owners Rebecca Weering and Jennifer Brayton. The first seaweed farm in the Netherlands, they started a year after us and uh, we were their first customers and we work closely uh, ever since. So they grow it in a national park, Eastersgeld, which is in the south of the Netherlands on the North Sea. It's kind of a protected bay, that's why the water quality is really good. What's cool about the weed burger that you don't immediately have this, ah, it tastes like this or it tastes like that. Since I met him, I've invited Mark to serve his burgers at a number of events I've curated in the UK. And I always make sure I'm first in the inevitable queue that always builds up. All I can say is the burgers are one of the tastiest things I've ever eaten. Really juicy and with a great texture that's hard to describe. Neither like meat nor like traditional vegan alternatives. It's like the saltiness of the ocean, and um, seaweed is also known for its umami flavor. Then we play around a little bit with like roasty flavors. So it's, it's a little bit of a mixture of that. On the day we spoke to Mark, he had literally just signed a contract marking the beginning of a new era for the company. Yeah, I signed it an hour ago. Dutch Weed Burger is now officially part of the Live Kindly Collective. It's a group of different companies from around the globe offering plant-based food solutions, working together to try to build a sustainable alternative food system.
So there's a Swedish brand called Oomph. There's a South African brand called Fries. There's a UK brand called No Meat. And several others. And through the Live Kindly Collective, these companies will be supported to scale their production and distribution internationally, offering more plant-based options for people around the world and aiming to reduce the demand for meat and dairy in the process. Meanwhile, for Mark and the team at the Dutch Weed Burger, the innovation continues. We're looking at different kinds of beans that you could work with. You could use the proteins to transform those proteins into, for example, meaty-like textures. Those are really popular. Things like mushrooms, for example, king oyster mushrooms, lion's mane. Those are really good for you, really good for your brain. And, and they grow, you know, they just, they just grow in, out of nothing, basically, you know. Mark says the future of food needs to see producers and distributors being much more collaborative with farmers. What you're going to see more and more and what I see around uh, myself is that companies start to work with farmers directly because they really want to know where the source is from. To tackle climate change and make food production sustainable, farming cannot continue to happen at an industrial scale without any care for the impact it has on the land. You really have to work with the environment, you have to work with biodiversity, you have to work with all the small animals in the ground. And farmers have to be supported to be able to do this. You know, farmers getting treated pretty badly uh, over the last decades because of the system, basically. They have to scale, they have to produce more, they have to intensify and maximize. And that, that has done really, really a lot of harm to the land and to the soil, you know. I was actually driving to work and I heard an interview on the radio with a chap called Professor Simon Blackmore and he was talking about the future of farming. This is Ben Scott Robinson, the former user experience designer we heard from at the start of the episode. Like Mark, he spent a lot of time thinking about the ways farming needs to change. While Mark's trying to move us away from meat production, Ben is focused on traditional crop farming. How can we grow food in a way that's regenerative and good for the planet? However, it may be rather cloudy Ben's journey into this world started when he stumbled across this radio programme. Just previously, the chat before, who came from a tractor company, was talking about how farming was going to become more industrialised, taking the driver out, making it autonomous, but ultimately, you know, using bigger machinery with bigger engines. You know, it's this big industrial process. When the professor came on the radio, he refuted everything Ben had just heard the previous guest say. And said that industrial farming had hit a real barrier. It hit a barrier in terms of its productivity. We weren't producing any more food. Um, but it also hit a barrier in terms of a tipping point on an environmental level. The damage being caused to soils, waterways and the wider environment couldn't be kept in balance any longer. And what was needed was a system which, instead of being industrial, was focused on small, small, lightweight, precise, autonomous vehicles that could act on individual plants. That completely blew me away. Ben contacted Professor Blackmore, who introduced him to a guy called Sam Watson-Jones. Sam had just inherited his family farm. And he looked at it from the farmer's side and realised that, you know, it was pretty much impossible these days to, to make a profit growing things like wheat and barley and oats and things like that. 
and the system was fundamentally broken and he was very keen to try and find a way to make it work. Ben and Sam decided they would try to fix the system. Future Lab, the podcast, is brought to you by Randox. We've been hearing from David Martin. He's a senior manager of manufacturing at Randox, and he's been there from pretty much the beginning. Peter's objective is really to try and produce a British diagnostic manufacturer. He's talking about Dr. Peter Fitzgerald, the founder of Randox. Right from the early days, we were responsible for developing a whole series of initially quite basic diagnostics. But over the years, the diagnostic technology became more and more sophisticated. Not only improved those and brought our own slant to them, we've also evolved into other sectors, into the food industry, you know, looking at the detection of growth promoters in, in food production, into toxicology, you know, looking at drugs of abuse. This evolution is partly down to the development of the biochip. Randox's tiny ceramic square tile with amazing testing capabilities. We could analyse multiple tests on a single analytical process you know, on the surface of a chip. Randox now has laboratories all around the world, including in medical examiners' offices in American forensics labs. And they're basically using our biochip to, first of all, identify presence of drugs in uh, in various circumstances, you know, somebody's been involved in a car accident, you know, and they suspect drugs have been taken, you know, they can be screened. They can be used for screening airline pilots, you know, the military, prisons, uh, again, looking for uh, particular uh, drugs that may be present. These tests can be incredibly useful from a criminal perspective too. You have a suspicious death or biochips can be used to identify, you know, a particular drug or a cocktail of drugs that perhaps has been involved. We'll hear more about the applications of Randox's tests later on. Ben Scott Robinson and Sam Watson-Jones had just become business partners. Together, they created the Small Robot Company. Their vision was to revolutionise the farming industry changing how our food is grown to make the system work properly for farmers and the environment. Sam knew the world of farming. And from his long career as a user experience designer, Ben knew how to solve problems with technology. Next, the pair met with lots of other farmers to hear more about their experiences. Particularly Sam went out to sit in you know, farmhouses and listen to the, the problems that farmers were having, listen to how they felt about new technology, what their pain points were, what they wanted their farm to become over the next five or ten years. They found an industry of people who wanted change, despite what the machine manufacturers were saying. I was chastened a bit by farmers' view of technology. You know, the, the assumption was, and kind of what I've been told beforehand, I suppose, was that farmers were complete Luddites. You know, they did what they had always done. Every farmer I met was different. You know, they all had different motivations. Very few of them were Luddites. They were always exploring or trying to understand how changes in technology could improve what they were doing. And many of them also had a really good understanding of the environmental imperatives to change how farming works. They saw the number of birds 
you know, sort of decreasing on their farm. They were aware of the drop in bees. They, you know, they, they know all of this stuff because they live on the farm and it's what they see on a daily basis. Ben and Sam built up an idea of the problems that needed solving. For example, big farming machinery is usually made in the US and isn't built to manage the types of fields we have in Europe. We have small wiggly fields that are incredibly productive and we have, you know, ownership system that dates back nearly a thousand years and all the technology that's being used is designed for massive fields that are completely square, you know, on farms that sometimes haven't existed for a hundred years and prior to that it was, you know, it was prairie. Farmers go, this doesn't fit, what can I do? You know, how can I make this work? The machinery issue was just the tip of the iceberg. So the problems that farmers have while they're growing crops is that the crop plant needs to have a good enough root system, a good enough way to sort of suck up all the nutrients to be able to make it grow and stand up on its own and produce good sort of seed heads and stuff like that to make a good yield. It needs to be able to survive attacks from pests and disease. It needs to be able to withdraw certain nutrients from the soil and it needs to not be outcompeted by the plants. Right now, those needs are addressed in a way Ben says is incredibly imprecise. So seeds are shoved in the ground at the moment by either ploughing the soil up and then sort of having these furrows that you then drop, literally just drop seed into. Farmers will just always shove in a bit more just in case, so they're always too crammed together, which means that some of them don't grow. Ploughing the fields loosens the soil. Then as soon as it rains, the soil flattens and hardens and, and compacts down. And then when tractors go over the top of that again, it compacts even more, which means that it's not possible for the soil biome to, to grow properly and, and the roots to spread properly. This means most crop plants are working at a fraction of their full capability. And then there's pest and disease management. Because a fungal infection or a, a pest outbreak is really bad and can reduce the yield um, quite fast, they have to do it in advance. So they put it on whether they need it or not. So it's literally this wash, constant wash of chemicals that are going across these plants over the course. Then, when farmers have harvested the plants, they churn everything up and lay the soil on the surface again. At exactly the time when it rains most. So all of this lovely soil then gets washed away. Ben and Sam learned about all these ways that the system wasn't delivering for farmers, or the rest of us, or for the planet. And it was farmers' attitudes to buying equipment that helped shape the final idea for what the small robot company would do. The real sort of showstopper was one farmer said, you know, we're not interested in buying another piece of kit. What we want to do is change the system. We want to change how we do this whole thing. We do not have two, three hundred thousand pounds to pay for a new piece of kit that we don't know if it's going to work. We don't know if it's, you know, if it's going to deliver on the promises and all that sort of stuff. So you will never sell it to us. Now, Ben and Sam knew what problems needed solving. And they knew farmers weren't prepared to shell out for expensive equipment that might change things. So they developed a business model of farming as a service rather than selling products. We basically realised that on a farm there are essentially three processes that need to happen. One is scouting. Monitoring the field constantly. And getting a per-plant view of what's going on in that field, both sort of before you plant, through the emergence and growth of the crop plant, all the way up to when it's harvested. 
The next process is planting. The ideal for that is that you understand the soil type, you understand the sort of rain that you get there, you understand the topography, you know, whether it's a hill or a valley, and then you plant according to that. And the final one is care. That's the process of controlling the environment to make sure the plants do well. We've developed robots to be able to serve those core purposes. Autonomous farming robots. Future Lab, the podcast, is brought to you by Randox. When Randox first developed its biochip technology, David Martin knew they were onto something special. We were able to perform tests simultaneously on a chip, you know, and get lots of information from, an effect, one diagnostic process. But at first, a lot of laboratories were resistant to taking on this new technology. It was very difficult to get people to really take it on board, and we felt the best way to do that was to actually establish our own network of clinics in the form of Randox Health, and people can come in and they can avail of all the new technology and all the new tests that we can provide that aren't aren't normally measured. Since Randox Health opened its first clinics, patients have been making significant discoveries about their health, with new tests being added to the biochip all the time. We've seen many examples of people going in for routine screening only to discover that the very early stages maybe of diabetes or, or other conditions that they've been able to react to and respond to and you know, successfully reverse. David hopes that one upside from the pandemic is that we're already beginning to think differently about the role of medical testing. You know, people have seen how Randox has contributed to you know, the fight against COVID and so on, that they begin to realise that you know, there's something very special here. You know, and uh, Certainly in Northern Ireland, our profile has increased quite, quite dramatically in recent times. And I think people are beginning to take us very seriously and that we've really got quite a, quite a treasure on our doorstep, as it were. You can find out more about booking your test at randoxhealth.com. For now, we'll leave the last word to David. By going to Randox Health, you know, you can uh, get a, a much more comprehensive MOT, as it were, uh, bringing on board a lot of the, the more novel uh, tests that we've developed over this last number of years. Ben and Sam designed three robots to carry out the three different core tasks on a crop farm monitoring fields, planting and caring for the environment. The monitoring robot is Tom. It drives up and down, creating an incredibly detailed map of every field, assessing the crops, looking for weeds and analysing the state of the soil. It gives farmers a detailed understanding of exactly what's going on in a field so they can make targeted decisions about how to care for it. And that's where the next robot comes in. The crop care robot's called Dick. Dick's a bit smaller than Tom. It can do precision spraying of fungicide, pesticide or nutrients as necessary. The Dick we're actually trialling this year has two electric probes on arms on the bottom of it so that it can kill weeds using electricity. And the planting robot, still in development, will be Harry. Harry will trundle through the field planting individual seeds, optimising the process for maximum yield. So they're the three robots, Tom, Dick and Harry. 
but the key is Wilma. The AI operating system that collects and processes all the data from the robots. Wilma is the complete brains of the operation. You know, you cannot miss one of our robots in a field. The robots are bright orange. We deliberately chose the, the thing that stood out the most against uh, a green background, basically. The monitoring robot, Tom, is already working in fields right now. He's about 1.4 metres square and he stands just over a metre tall. It has four wheels. Like a sort of faceted, large remote control car. And a gap underneath of about two foot, which allows it to drive over the crop plant safely. And out the front, he's got this big sort of carbon fibre boom, which is about five metres wide. And on that boom, there are all sorts of sensors, cameras, lights, etc, etc, to be able to do stuff. That boom all folds up and then goes back into Tom, so that Tom can either go into his kennel or, at the moment, go into the back of the van and then be, be taken away. We uh, were scanning a five-hectare field a little while ago and we found out it had 16,700,000 crop plants and 275,000 non-crop plants in the field, right? And we know where all of them are, absolutely down to the last centimetre, every single one. We can go back to them and we can check them, and make sure they're fine and do all this sort of stuff. Having this kind of data about a field also means they can approach the care in a radically different, more individualised way. For example, when it comes to weeds. Why kill all of them? Ben and Sam met with the farm manager of the National Trust's Wimpole estate. And what he saw was there were only a few plants that actually impacted on the yield of the crop. You know, most of them were neutral and some of them were really beneficial. You know, so if you've got like meadow flowers, if you've got clovers which actively lock nitrogen into the soil, so you don't need to put nitrates on the surface of the soil because you have this done by a plant. If you leave those plants in the field, you create something that's more akin to a meadow. And less like a sort of a monoculture, a green desert, which is sort of the standard thing. So now we're working through that. We're delivering our first species-specific weed map for our service in October. And we are starting to trial the capability to be able to kill just the weeds that we want to kill and leave the other ones alone. The technology of the small robot company is creating the potential to revolutionise how we grow food, letting us regenerate and conserve the land in the process, rather than sacrificing it. And it could also totally change the lives of farmers themselves. Just as we've seen in so many areas over this series, automation and robotics don't just make processes more efficient, they can alter the nature of our jobs entirely. A farm is nearly always a multi-million pound business. It might not make a lot of profit, but in terms of revenues being generated, in terms of money being spent, you know, there's, there's a lot of money going through that farm. The owner or manager or director of a multi-million pound business in any other situation would be spending time thinking about how to make that business better. Most farmers don't have the time to do that because they are doing menial jobs that they have to do because they can't afford to pay people to do it. If you remove those jobs from them, they can start thinking about that. Even though Ben and Sam came into the farming industry as radical disruptors, they're now starting to make connections in unexpected places. People who, a few years ago, we would have assumed 
would view us as the enemy. They've been approached by some of the largest agricultural companies in the world. Seed companies and chemical companies and people like that. And they are looking at this data, looking at the, what we can create for them and realising that that's really valuable for them to create their products, to make their products more efficient, to allow them to be greener. Seaweed patties replacing beef burgers and robots doing regenerative farming. These ideas might seem far-fetched, but they're here now, shaping the immediate future. In 10 years' time, the way we farm, the way we eat, and so many other areas of life will look vastly different. It's all on the horizon, if you look. The time when we will know when it's really landed, when what we're doing is really there, is when you are on a train or you're in a car and you're going along next to a field, you know, in Cambridgeshire or Hampshire or wherever it is, and there's a slightly weird looking orange things tootling around in that field, and you'll just ignore it. It's just the way it happens. The Future Lab podcast is brought to you by Randox. It's presented by me, Lucy Johnston. The producers are Arlie Adlington, Isis Thompson, Paul Smith, and Peggy Sutton from Something Else with Neil Cole.